Good morning. Well, today we're turning in our Bibles to Psalm 53. And as we turn to Psalm 53, what we are finding ourselves dealing with is the whole matter of how God views the atheist. The atheist in particular in verse 1, but then it kind of expands itself out, doesn't it, in this psalm to deal with the sum total of humanity. I'd love for you to make your way to Psalm 53. And again now, what you're going to see, as I've noted in our insert for this morning, is that this is part of book two of the Psalms. And in book one, the predominant name for the sovereign one of this world was Yahweh. We take that in the English L-O-R-D, all capitalized, Lord. What you will find in book two is the predominant name is Elohim. In English, simply G-O-D. What you will furthermore notice, as we've spotted in our insert this morning, is that this psalm is by and large a duplicate of Psalm 14. But there are some differences. What fascinates us is that in Psalm 14, the name Yahweh appears repeatedly. In Psalm 53, Yahweh's name is not mentioned. It's Elohim all the way through. Why? It is because Psalm 53, part of book two, is a universal statement. All of humanity, God's people and those who frankly are opposed to God's will. God is now making a universal statement with regard to the way he wants to relate to this world. So he uses the general name Elohim for God rather than the redemptive name Yahweh to describe your sovereign one. That way then, he is now Jew and Gentile alike, pulling them all in, and they're going to have to lean forward and ask him, what is it that the God of the universe wants to say to me at this particular moment in time? You might see some of the world's condition here in these verses. Because in the superscription, we are told that this is to the choir master. So this is a musical composition that has a teaching emphasis. It's according to the Mahalath, which is either, and it's hard to know for certain whether this is a tune or a stringed instrument. What we do know is that a maskil there in your superscription is a form of a teaching and it is part of the collection of David. We are back now into the Davidic collection, this time in book two. And here now in six verses, God gives a general sense of the condition of humanity. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. Corrupt. 
There is none who does good, not even one. Question. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? Note the emotional state. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. That's the bad news. Notice the good news. Oh, that's how it's meant to be expressed. A sense of an exhale here. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And so that's what we're going to be exploring now this morning together. These six verses on your own, you're going to want to compare them to Psalm 14 and see where there are similarities, where there are differences and what the purpose and the intent is in each, as we look to our Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, this psalm is meant to speak to the heart, meant to engage the person, whether it be the religionist or the secularist, whether one is close or when one is far removed. What we need to understand is that there is an assessment being made by you. What we need, Father, is to embrace the one you sent, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. And the key verse, verse 6, draws that out for us. So now, Father, these words are important. We want to understand what it is that you would say. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things still again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Another era when the noted atheist Robert Ingersoll was delivering one of his addresses. It was a strategic moment, an important moment, where he pulled his watch from his pocket and said, according to the Bible, God has struck men to death for blasphemy. I will blaspheme him and give him five minutes to strike me dead and down my soul. There was there was a period of extraordinary silence. One minute went by. Two minutes passed. People beginning to feel a little bit uneasy. Three minutes. Then four. As Inger saw and corrode his lip. And in a moment of defiance at five minutes, snapped shut his watch 
put it in his pocket, looked out over the vast audience and said, You see, there is no God, or he would have taken me at my word, quote, unquote. Well, the story was later told to Joseph Parker, an outstanding pastor in London, England, who said, quote, And did the American gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of God in five minutes? Unquote. And what you find when you're dealing with the sovereignty of God and God is willing to wait things out for people to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ is the mercy of God, the patience of God, to communicate the grace of God that we would put faith in Christ alone. What I want to do with you is to work this through together, these six verses. Starts with the bad news, ends with the good news, and there are three significant perspectives that we need to be able to glean from these six verses. The first is rooted in verses 1 down through verse 3. I'm going to phrase it like this, is that you and I, as we consider God's relationship to this world, note first of all the conditions, the human conditions that God observes. Now, notice how all this begins. The verses begin to appear on the screen. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The word fool, there are three different Hebrew words in the Old Testament for the word fool. The one that is used, chosen here, would have been one that David, have, he would have bumped into. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 25, there is a man there whose name is Nabal, and he lived up to his name, you see. The name means Fool. And so David had to address Nabal one-on-one, so to speak, in the way in which he was relating to the God of this universe. Now, the fool, notice that he, this fool, being described here, he is having a conversation, but at this point, not with humanity, not making arguments necessarily with humanity, not to say he isn't, But notice where the focus is. There is this intense conversation happening in his heart where he is saying, there is no God. We're dealing with the what, what he says. We're dealing with the where, where he says it. Now, as you and I begin to look very carefully at the Old Testament, for example, and the way in which God deals with the condition of the heart, take, for example, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God is looking upon the condition of humanity during the days of Noah, and the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. Get this. In 6.5. 
and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, if you fast forward, say, to First Chronicles 28, verse 9, we're told that we're to serve God with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind for the Lord, that's now Yahweh, searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. This is the second collection of David, Davidic Psalms. The first is in book one, second in book two. There was a time when Samuel was looking for the one who replaced Saul as king of Israel. He thought he had the man, strong, handsome in appearance, name Eliab, looked apart, looked like Saul, part two. Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed's before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Later, David is brought in. And the Lord says to Samuel, arise, anoint him. This is he. And the word anoint comes from the word, Hebrew word, Messiah. Messiah him. In other words, it will be the Davidic line that leads to the ultimate David, Jesus Christ. But for this to have happened, what you see now is that what God is doing is that he is giving Samuel the opportunity to see that God works from the inside out. You drop off your car at the dealership, let's say, or perhaps uh, some other service place, something not right. And so the fellow who says, I'll drive you back to your house, gets you in the front seat, you begin to talk with him and realize all of a sudden there's a red light that's going on on his dashboard as well. Not just yours. All of a sudden you are being given information. Internal information. Something's wrong under the hood. Is it the temperature? Is it the oil? What you want to do is to process this information. All of a sudden, that which is internal is now being communicated in a way that is external. Now, what God is about to do at this point is that he's going to take the condition of the human heart, that which is internal, and now he's going to address humanity as a whole in making this whole issue external. The fool says in his heart, there is no God that is an absolute universal that is being shared at this point. But now there's an end to the quote mark, isn't there? God's turn to speak. 
And so God has been monitoring the heart condition here. He is the ultimate cardiologist. And so there are three descriptives that begin to emerge. You're still in verse 1. Can you spot them? Number one, they are corrupt. Number two, doing abominable iniquity. Number three, and this one gives everybody pause, there is none who does good. God is taking time now to evaluate the condition of the heart. God looks down from heaven. The word looks down, you're now in verse 2, carries with the idea to scrutinize intensely, to evaluate accurately. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Now what John and Steph have been doing for six years plus is to help people to understand. So now God is now breaking in. He is looking down. He's examining. God looks down. We saw it in Genesis 6-5 where he peered down at the condition of humanity. You see it again in Genesis chapter 11 of verse 5, where at the Tower of Babel, God came down to evaluate, to scrutinize, assess the condition of humanity. In the book, Ordering Your Private World, the writer speaks of a close friend who was an officer aboard a U.S. Navy nuclear submarine. He related to me an experience that happened one day while the sub was on duty in the Mediterranean where many ships were passing overhead on the surface. The sub was having to make a large number of violent maneuvers to avoid possible collisions. In the absence of the captain, my friend was duty officer in charge of giving the commands by which the submarine was positioned at each and every moment. Because there was such a sudden, unusual amount of movement, the captain who had been in his own quarters suddenly appeared, came out, came down to the bridge. He asked, is everything all right? As he looked around, as he evaluated. Yes, sir, my friend's response the captain took a quick look around and then started back out toward through the hatch to leave the bridge. And as he disappeared, he said simply, it looks all right to me too. But the writer tells us that that simple routine encounter between a naval commander and one of his trusted officers provided me with a helpful understanding of the order of one's private world. All around that submarine, potential danger of collision was lurking. It was enough to make the captain alert, if you will. But then, but then he went to the place he needed to go. 
He went to the bridge for thorough inspection. Now, what you and I have to do is to monitor the conditions of our hearts so that we're not in the ICU of life where we need our, our ultimate cardiologist to address the heart condition that we find ourselves in. And so what he does at this point is that he offers us a threefold descriptive of humanity here in verse 1 as a means of launching away, launching beyond the one who is the fool who says in his heart there's no God. God says they are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God, in verse 2, looks down. He, he assesses. He takes inventory and evaluation, a spiritual from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And then, and then what's his diagnosis? What does he say? How does he evaluate? What is it that he wants to be able to communicate to you and to me? They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now Paul would pick up on this in Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12. When he would write, it is written, there, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they become worthless. No one does good. And Highlander wants to raise his hand and say, yeah, but, and he says, Highlander, not even one, not even you. And man, am I in a bad place at this point. G.K. Chesterton was responding to uh, uh, a question posed in the Times under the subject, what is wrong with the world today? His response was the best. Dear sir, I am yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. Now, we have to reach that point, then, when we begin to grapple with this whole question, why is it, then, that God would say that there is none who does good, not even one? Let's tease this out for just a moment. Let's say you're bumping into somebody who says, well, well my father, he's a good man, or my daughter, she's a good lady, that kind of thing. Well, we've got to ask, are we dealing with sinful goodness or are we dealing with sinless goodness? For you see, sinful goodness is relative. That's just simply in comparison to those around us. He's relatively good compared to others. But sinless goodness, there was one known as the good teacher, Jesus Christ. And God's standard of goodness is perfection. Thus all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so my relative goodness just isn't good enough. So the question needs to be posed strategically to humanity is how good is good? How good do you have to be to be acceptable before God? And if God says there's none good, no, not one, we've got ourselves a dilemma here. 
And then the question is, and how will this dilemma be addressed, which we're getting to? But thus far, we need the ultimate cardiologist to be able to assess and then diagnose the condition of the human heart at this point. And so he has done this for you. He's done this for me. And now we begin to pause and we begin to think and we begin to ponder just what is it that God wants to say to me with regard to this whole matter of my relationship to him. The ethicist, the moralist, the religionists all have to ask the same. And so where do we deal with this subject of the fool says in his heart there is no God? John Blanchard in one of his books passes on the statement of the Harvard scientist George Ward, where Ward said that when it comes to the origin on earth, there are only two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. Spontaneous generation, Ward said, was disproved a hundred years ago, and that leads only to one other option, supernatural creation. Quote, But as scientists, we cannot accept that. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. Now, for those with science background, science majors, I'm in that camp, that's not a very scientific way to approach this. Because that's not science. That's scientism. But that is not science. As we consider God's relationship to this world... Begin with me by noticing the conditions that God observes in 1 through 3. But now as he has moved from the internal to the external and assessed, notice second of all with me another perspective. Not only the conditions that he observes, but the scattering that he produces. It comes out of verse 4 and again now out of verse 5. And in verses 4 and 5, what you will find is that this question is posed. Have those who work evil no knowledge? They're consumers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. And you say, where do I find any sense of comfort and hope in that question? Did you notice the wording? He said, my people. That means then that he has a relationship with certain people. And those, these people, his people then, are being attacked and threatened and so forth, which is in keeping with what the scriptures had promised all along about persecution. Therefore, they are in great terror where there is no terror. He speaks to those who are opposed to the people of God. And I thought about that. Where in the book Loving God, Chuck Colson described a scene in 1978 where the British interviewer, David Frost, invited me to a televised debate with the atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare. The show was to be taped before a live audience and then broadcast nationwide on NBC. Before the taping, I studied transcripts of Mrs. O'Hare's past encounters with believers to familiarize myself with her methods and material. And I learned that 
during her debates, she would appear to quote the Bible at length to support her militant anti-Christian views. But in fact, she craftily used passages out of context, subtly rearranged words to change their meaning. In light of this, I, though I knew it would arouse her anger, I decided to take my Bible to the debate. Well, from the opening round, Mrs. O'Hare was true to form, angrily spitting invectives at Christians in general, me in particular, When I was speaking, she was off camera, contorting her face, made obnoxious gestures in a coarse effort to distract me, aggressively interrupting, glibly misquoting scripture. She scored her blows early to the crowd's delight. Hmm. I kept my Bible unobtrusively at my side. But when she shouted, the Bible teaches you to kill, I leaned across a startled David Frost, thrust the Bible at her and said, wait a minute, you know this book, Mrs. O'Hare, find it, read it to me. She blanched. For a moment groped for words, drew back in her chair, shaking her head furiously, angrily. I thrust the Bible toward her once again. She recoiled again. And even in the heat of the moment, I was struck by her absolute refusal to so much as touch the Bible. And with that, the tide of the confrontation was turned. She seemed subdued, defensive, fearful. They are in great terror where there is no terror. These ones opposed to God's sovereign plan. Now, looking at the encampment of those nations that, that think Armageddon now, circling around the Jews, and God had a plan to work through the Jews to bring Messiah into this world, We think poetically, we think prophetically. When it comes to the end of verse 5, God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. Think Revelation chapter 19, Battle of Armageddon. Similarly, Zechariah chapter 14, which describes succinctly Battle of Armageddon. Tie those two chapters in the Bible together. Though communicating poetically, he's expressing truths prophetically. God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. Think Megiddo, Battle of Armageddon. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Now here, here we find a turning point. For verses 1 through 3... Help us to understand the conditions of humanity that God observes. He's peering in. Verses 4 through 5, the scattering that God produces. He scatters the bones. Think Revelation chapter 19, poetically to prophetically. Now, there's a third perspective I want to draw out now. And this is where it shifts from the negative to the positive you move from the description to the prescription. Verse 6. 
the longing that God fulfills. There is a longing in the heart of all humans. Somehow, someway, fix this thing. This world is gone wrong. But where did you get that idea of wrong? And where do we get the concept of right compared to versus wrong? Could there be a higher authority? And could it be that the fool in verse 1 simply has an issue with authority? Remove authority, he can then eliminate accountability. We need salvation. We need grace. We need Jesus. And so now, it's an emotional exhale. We're here now. In verse 6, you and I find these words. Oh. It's as if the writer is utterly exhausted by the condition of humanity. And all he's faced, day after day of living life. Ah. That salvation for Israel. Mark this would come out of Zion. We're talking Jerusalem. We're talking how Jesus made his way to the cross to die for your sins and mine. This is the remedy, and this is the prescription. When God restores the fortunes of his people, he's a promise keeper, Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And I thought about that when I came across this article in Chosen People's publication. Jew, a Christian Jew, Fran Feldman. She writes the horrifying reality of the Holocaust where my family was encircled and camped against. Not something I had to learn about in books or movies. This is what has shaped my family's life. When my parents and older brother came to America from Europe after World War II, they settled in Cincinnati. I was born a year later. My younger brother came about five years after that. And many of our neighbors had the same background, and the Holocaust was something we all were trying to put behind us. When my older brother turned 13, he was grappling with the whys of this life, this world. Why are we in the condition we're in? Attended a Bible study in our neighbor's home, and soon came to believe what they taught, that Yeshua, which means Jesus, is the Jewish Messiah. When he shared the news with my parents, you could say they were not happy. Still, my mother agreed to let my brother attend a messianic congregation, meet other Jewish believers, and in time she became concerned about allowing her son to attend a place she knew nothing about, so she visited, and before long, she came to believe in the scriptures that Yeshua was her Messiah. The Messianic congregation became a way of life for her and her three children. And my dad was not very happy about this. But he permitted us to attend. 
You know where the cutting-edge ministries are happening right now in the Ukraine? Messianic congregations. They're being encamped along the border. Although I went to this congregation for the next five years, I did not believe what they taught, but I still participated. In my freshman year of college, our congregation sent the, the college age group to Chicago for a retreat, and I looked forward to a chance to get away. Well, I was with a friend that was very zealous. One day, she began to talk with some people on the street about how she had come to have a personal relationship with God through Yeshua. I chimed in, since I had some knowledge of the Bible at that point. My friend asked these people if they would like to pray with us and ask Yeshua to be their Messiah, and they said yes. My friend told me to pray with one of the people, and she prayed with the other. Now, this was really funny, me praying with someone to receive the Messiah, when I had yet to receive the Messiah. And they were so excited after they finished but when, then, I went back to where I was staying that night, I was troubled. I talked to God for the first time. I did not want to be excluded from the joy and peace that these other Jews so evidently now enjoyed. So that night, at age of 19, I came to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah and I found that from that point on, I loved reading about Yeshua and getting to know him. It has always been important for me to maintain my Jewishness. That's who I am. I would never think to distance myself from my history or my heritage. But there's one more thing. After many years of watching us, my dad became a Christian. He told me that he never understood why he survived such a terrible time in Europe until he realized that he had had to come to America so that he could meet his Messiah Yeshua and Jesus people sometimes people have to go through hard times so that somebody in your circle or expanded circle meet Jesus and you know what? It's worth it. Let's stand together. It's back to the heart. You work from the inside out. To understand humanity, we have to understand the heart. The dashboard to our hearts is flashing around the world. But there's somebody who can fix this. It's you. And all that need, was needed took place at the cross of Jesus Christ when Jesus died for our sins. There's salvation that came out of Zion. There's restoration for your people. And we rejoice, the psalmist. And so, Father, I pray now for those watching online. At this moment, days, weeks to come.
for those in various services this morning. Being religious doesn't save us. Being good makes us wonder, but is it good enough? It isn't. We need to put our faith and trust in the one who is sinless goodness. And may the result be, Father, that there are still more and more people that have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior because they started with the bad news and then got to the good news and realized it was worth the journey of life. We give you praise. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.